and welcome to yet another episode of the Dice Are Screaming Podcast. <gasps> That's right, coming at you once a week. Oh boy, you guys are lucky. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, uh, yeah, somewhat more relaxed pace for us. Yeah. Uh, which, during these incredibly tumultuous times, uh, definitely takes the pressure off. Uh, still love doing it, just, you know, easier to make sure that we're uh, on time and meeting this expectation. Yep, and we're here just doing it uh, once a week now on Wednesdays, so you can look forward to that. Of course, uh, well, a little less uh, interruptions, too, I think, uh, on our daily schedule, so that allows us to get a little bit more focus in on our topics. So, uh, just going to go over our last uh, two sessions have been part of what we once had a mind to do, which was summer camp, where we were going to take apart various uh, old school and new adventures, adventure paths, modules, what have you, and reconstruct them in a way that we wanted to do. And we, uh, I think we succeeded pretty well in B2, and B1 seems to have attracted a little bit like, hey, uh, yeah, we get it that you're talking about story, but it was always there. And, okay, if you had always had story, then you weren't the ones we were swinging at with this one. But Oh, yeah, yeah, many, many of you, you know, may have... Uh, played much more the way we played, which, you know, the, the, the story in the background uh, played a part. Yeah, uh, it's always the, been there. The plot uh, was a thing that, that had some relevance to us. Uh, it wasn't always just a blind dungeon crawl and we're going to, you know, uh, stab a beholder in the big eye. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, using the random dungeon table out of the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide uh, to get your... Uh, level on you know hey uh, guilty as charged been there uh, <laughs> but as fun as that is to do it does sometimes take the wind out of your sails when players start to try to become attached to the campaign when it's just like hey we're just playing nobody cares it's a one-off mike i think summed it up pretty well in our last podcast when we were talking about b1 search for the unknown when you were first showing up you didn't need to know a whole lot about the campaign world you just wanted to get people started into that and that's where i think a lot of the adventure this started this feeling of that there wasn't a whole bunch of connection because they could be put you could place it here you could place it there you could put it in different areas of your campaign world or in the published ones which well i guess there was only what world of very hot well all right sure at the time uh you know circa that era uh Honestly, I believe B1 was originally intended for the Blackmore area. and uh, Oh, no, it had that big old uh, uh, where to put it in World of Greyhawk. That was what... It had that, too. Yeah. Uh, it, it made notation on how to use it in either realm, uh, whether it was, like, on the way to Glantry or... Uh, yeah, they. I don't think they had uh, the known world. I at might that time. be... I think you're thinking more on... Uh, Castle Amber, maybe? Yes, Chaos Lambert, which we'll be covering. Yeah, that's going to show up too. Yeah, we're going to be doing, uh, in just to give you a little peek behind the curtain of what's coming up, uh, next week we're going to be covering uh, B3, Palace of oh, Silver Princess. I remember now, uh, the tidbit in the beginning of B1, uh, In Search of the Unknown, uh, specified that it could be played with either system. I don't think it mentioned a location in which to settle other than Greyhawk. Right. Uh, but it, it gave an Three separate examples of locations that could be used in Greyhawk, uh, and it mentioned that with regard to the rule systems, 
Uh, it could be done with either basic Dungeons and Dragons or advanced. Uh, and if you look at the contents of the module, you'll find that it was pretty easy stuff to adapt. Not terribly complicated. Oh yeah, and so I think going on with a certain... Well, as we're trying to talk about things going forward, uh, having a look that, yeah, you know, we weren't really trying to call too many people out in the carpet here. What we were trying to point out is that a lot of these early modules get bypassed or dismissed as that they didn't have much substance to them. And of course, you know, I don't think that anybody's saying that they didn't have anything in them, but there wasn't much of a campaign or story arc. And here we are covering and talking about these now, an example of one that uh, did not have much of anything in the way of long-term plans. Uh, if you were to take, for instance, White Plume Mountain uh, or Ghost Tower of Inverness, uh, these were not big campaign builder, open source, like big plot picture concepts. <clears throat> these were dungeon crawls uh, with very little extra trimmings. You know, maybe a little background story about where you came from and why you're doing this, like in Ghost Tower of Inverness, but they launched you very quickly into the uh, actual purpose of the adventure. Yeah, and there wasn't really a great deal to be said for what comes after. Right. Now, the reason we highlighted, uh, you know, B1, B2, and we'll be taking a peek at B3, uh, these were also modules from a very early time, uh, and they are in stark contrast to those other modules. They are mini campaign play level uh, openers. They're they're perfect building blocks for beginnings. Right. Uh, so, you know, there there is kind of a method to the madness that in those first several modules in the B series, you really get. A terrific window into how rich gameplay can be and it was entirely intentional because it was addressing a whole new audience of first-time D&D players right circa 1981-82. You see that's what I think is fascinating is even though we didn't play to that level yet that was the bar that was presented to us and you know we pilloried ourselves trying to get to that because we were young we were enthusiastic and inexperienced in how to craft and keep a story hell we were still figuring out how to write english papers and get an a okay so <laughs> you got a's <laughs> hey man i have majored through english unbelievably so the way i speak but yes it's important to realize that in no way we're trying to diminish anybody's fun. If you had fun just, you know, creating random dungeons and doing random things and errors, and you had a great time doing it and you made your own stories, hey, you know what? That's that's great. Oh, what I'm we're... a big fan of the uh, Iron DM like concept where you take an old-fashioned DM guide and that's the only, you know, the, the big three. DM guide, monster manual, player's handbook. And you just sit down and you sandbox it and you use those random tables and generate a dungeon on the spot. And, I, you know, if you've done the Iron DM thing over the years, that's a badge of honor too, okay? You don't need, like, a big, long story. Like, you guys are going in a hole in the ground and, you know, stuff is going to happen and not all of it's going to be pretty. Well, Iron DMing is like, take, okay, the only monsters you can use are those that begin with your initials. R. D. P. Wow. Crap. <laughs> Man. Okay. 
Okay. Okay, and then when you do that, hand it to the left of your of the per, your person to the left, and that's their monster list. Dang. And then okay, you know, fifteen minutes. Let's get a dungeon going. One level and uh, craft or craft an urban adventure, murder mystery. You know, you had to pass the cards. That was some crazy stuff. You know, you thought you were writing for an urban mis murder mystery, and now you're writing for a wilderness exploration using these charts, and it's just so random. But we digress. <laughs> yeah, that, the, the it, point it, is that I, we don't, we never intended to invalidate that style of play either, because that is awesome. Uh, the only bone of contention would be when people proclaim that gaming with story and plot and like thought and rich campaign details and stuff like that uh, isn't real old school gaming. Uh, we have to hit the wrong <laughs> fail. Not even sure you were there. Show me your card. You know. Wrong, 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 wrong. Yeah. Uh, wrong, 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 wrong. I, I cannot let that pass because, I mean, no. for those of us who were there and totally did that and had that, ah, the, you know, who the, who the heck thinks they have the right to... Well, that wasn't real gaming. I don't know what you guys were doing. Some, like, alien stuff. No, bite me. The, <laughs> the alien stuff is the people who actually... It's a game of the imagination and you failed at it? That's not even supposed to be possible, dude! <laughs> um, there's not supposed oh. to be winners and losers, and you found a way. No. I, I respect the way you powered through the inability to lose... And innovated. I, you know, I, this I like the like way a, you think. Like a Kobayashi Maru scenario. Star Trek scenario there where you're like, there's not supposed to be any way to win. Well, here we have a game where there's not supposed to be any way to lose. Amazing. You did it anyway. That is uncanny. Give mm. that man a trophy. So, so to those guys, yeah, all right, they can bite me. But no, uh, to the various styles of gameplay that are possible... Uh, Total high five to all of them. Yeah, and that's the thing is we're punching at shadows for a lot of the times because I don't give these guys much air because I don't think they deserve it. I But they do come at us and they lurk in the shadows. You probably have examples of your own. And if you have some examples of these uh, <clears throat> fellows of your own or <laughs> folks, uh, you know, and you want to share them with us, that's cool. But uh, we're trying to punch uh, a little bit above our weight class. Sometimes, so I think we attract some attention that probably we don't deserve because we're just, we're the senior Wenson of gaming podcasts where, you know, we're talk we're doing a marionette show with our hand. It's a cry for help. Yeah. <laughs> we're barely the senior guard game. <laughs> well, that's a bit of a scare, but you yeah, those will get it. Uh, you know, how you doing? <laughs> I was going for the senior Wenson, you know, the guy's like... You know, just uses his hand as a puppet with a wig and some lipstick. You know. <laughs> it's a cry for help. <laughs> what do you call that? A cry for help. <laughs> oh, it is at that. Ah, uh, yes. So I guess that's why we do it. But anyway. The, the, um, the failed backstab of gaming podcasts oh! strikes or fails to strike again. Oh, yes. Thank you. Uh, but half our charm is in that we know this about ourselves. We're, so sometimes we're we, not under any illusions, trust me. So somebody just finds us and occasionally, you know, throws some uh, shade our way, which is normally I, is cool, but it's always so virtualic that I, it's just going to get uh, rancor, and I'm just not about that negativity. There's that, enough. It's not that bad to give a little flat back and clarify a point. I mean, uh, I don't often involve myself in battles on the internet of any kind. 
because uh, I did plenty of that in my wayward youth, uh, back when I thought that, that would make some kind of difference somehow. Yeah, when there was some shred of naivete left in my soul, and I. But yes, but, but I, I got that out of my system, so I don't do that anymore. But if there's a very specific point that I, I really want to like fine tune and, and just get right down to exactly where those, you know, where do we move out of the gray area? You know, where's where are the parameters here? I I like things like that. I I feel engaged when we talk about them. So. Totally yeah. worth it. Not sorry a bit. Uh, yeah, we just I just didn't want to come across as we were trying to pillory anybody or how you play. You, if you your enjoy- gaming is plotless, you suck. No. No. <laughs> not- but if you think that gaming cannot exist in that continuum and be real gaming, then you have issues that go way beyond the normal. <laughs> I like the Kobayashi humor. But all right, so here in the yeah, so we're going to continue on with our summer camp as it's winding its way down. We're getting close to Labor Day, so and we got something pretty epic. Yeah, we got a good one for you. So uh, we're going to get right into that. But I want to give uh, carry on with that preview. We got a little sidetracked, but uh, steering us back on course a little bit. Yeah, B three is going to be our next episode, so stick around for that. And then we're going to do a mashup between tonight's, which is Curse of the Crimson Throne. This involves. Two princesses, and that's where we're going to have the uh, head-to-head. We're going to make some comparisons of those modules. Now, you may think that, well, hey, you're talking about Curse of the Crimson Throne. All right, this was like the third big one out the gate. Uh, It was actually Second Darkness out of Rise of the Rune Lords, and this was uh, Curse of the Crimson Throne. It's a Pathfinder adventure path, and it's one of the fun ones. I like it. Uh, I think it's a little bit more mature. It's, first of all... It's a weighty tome. <clears throat> yeah, okay. just like uh, Rise of the Rune Lords. But this one, they had a little bit more time. Uh, the Advanced Players Guide had started to uh, be dreamed up, and so they were throwing some things out there. And there are almost 480 pages in this. This is a comprehensive campaign setting for beginning-to-end play. You yeah, can, so this was... This it could be the entire <coughs> adventure your whole party plays for like a year. Yep, and just like any of the adventure paths, that's what the charm is. Now, with that comes some baggage, and we're going to discuss that, as we previously stated about too much story and too little substance. And this is one where I think the balance is right. Rise of the Rune Lords, uh, the first Pathfinder adventure path, is fun. It's great, and it's very diverse. It has a solid story that flows all the way through with some good dungeons and some um i want to say stage setting for where they this campaign world what was possible and what it was going to do but it was a little random at times and i sometimes felt that it jarred it was a little too jarring between its diverse elements curse of the crimson throne when it came out uh 2008 which is you know pretty much uh, right there with the first of them they were doing two a year i think yeah, and when you consider just how comprehensive and large uh, these, in in particular, this beautiful hardbound edition was, uh, to manage to get this out in a happy year, they must have had it in development well before that. Yeah, so they have the traits in here, and that's we're going to start with two things. We're going to put together where Curse of the Crimson Throne talks about story and background working together, and how thematically and also mechanically it works. Now, to set up, whether you play Pathfinder or not, it's Dungeons & Dragons with a little bit of reskinning. And 
if you're in the 5e and you say, well, Pathfinder Classic's really weighty and stuff like that, okay, fine. But there's a lot to be, can be uh, learned from here. So, nonetheless, it is um, a weighty tome, as Mike said, because it covers six uh, large books, six issues of uh, installments that take you from first level pretty well to about 16th, 17th. Yeah, I would say so, uh, especially with... Uh... The Pathfinder, similar to 3.5-esque system uh, that maintains a extremely similar leveling for all character classes, uh, which, you know, for those who uh, are familiar, that, that has become a norm. It wasn't always, but uh, I don't disapprove. Uh, in 3.5 and in Pathfinder, uh, you find that uh, the players tend to level all as a single group. Uh, you know, the experience points rarely being all that different for each of them. So you can yeah, count that's... on the challenges being uh, aimed generally at a party that is ready to take them on. Uh, which, again, this takes a little bit of the work and blood and sweat and tears out of the old-fashioned DMing school where, you know, it was... There were no warnings. You really had to develop your own sense of equilibrium uh, about, you know, well, what can my players handle? And you could go under or go over. Okay, that's still true in modules like uh, Curse of the Crimson Throne, but only to a, a much milder degree. Uh, the path of advancement through some of these challenges generally has the players well-matched right out of the gate. Uh, and it is not that hard for a DM to tweak things by adding or subtracting an opponent or two, depending on the circumstances. Well, yeah, and that's a lot of the stuff of 3rd edition. But what we're going to get into here is, as we talked in B2, Keep on the Borderlands, that there's a story. Well, obviously, this is a big story, and it's going to take you along with it. But this one is a story of urban adventure. Now, primarily it starts as urban adventure, but how do you draw players into urban adventure? Well, you tell them, it's a city adventure. And so there's this guide to Corvosa, which the city takes place in, uh, right off the bat. Uh, it provides a lot of background on systemless. This was the early parts of the Pathfinder Chronicles where they weren't necessarily, they didn't have a system yet, so they were writing to a certain crowd of people that were still playing 3rd edition or maybe playing even 4th edition. And so they wanted to make the uh, the Chronicles sort of an open uh, gaming book with, you know, you could add whatever details you wanted. Now, of course, coming with this is the Player's Guide. Now, the, the first Rise of the Rune Lords didn't come with a Player's Guide. Second Darkness did, and Curse of the Crimson Throne also came with one. But... Here's where we talk about backgrounds. Uh, they have these things called traits. Now, Pathfinder didn't have backgrounds. They gave you traits, and they let your background kind of be the uh, kind of fluid thing that it was, has been pretty much in all the times. Is like you make it up, and this is how you'd establish your character. But they have background traits. They have uh, class and adventure site traits and all that, but... The background traits right here puts you right in the mind of where you're going to be tied into this campaign. And he's a good idea, a hook right away, a villain called Garden Lamb, who is pretty much the... Oh, Gadrin. Gadrin, Gadrin, Gadrin I'm sorry. Gadrin Lamb, who... Wow, I mean, and as you read through these traits, Gadrin Lamb is a 
total D-bag. Oh, yeah. In, in every possible respect. A local crime lord. Uh, and they have provided an entire series of traits that impact your character, but also conveniently give you a reason to have dealt with Gadron Lamb or to have an issue with Gadron Lamb in one way or another. So even though people have unique backgrounds, uh, you know, like, like all different possible lineages, uh, wildly varying classes, doesn't matter. You still have a reason for all of you to be involved with or to, you know, like, you really want this guy on a stake. You yeah, know? you have, he's definitely a villain. And see, that is what we're talking Traits like, uh, you know, betrayed uh, with the, the possible options, hungry for revenge or reformed criminal. Uh, drug addict with the options, addicted friend that, or personal addiction. Framed uh, with the dropout or family honor, you know, where somebody you cared about was accused of this and, you know, you're fighting for the, the honor of your family. Uh, love lost, where, you know, someone you loved was killed or orphaned. Uh, missing child, unhappy childhood, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, just not exactly happy little things, but they, they all revolve around one terrible person and give the players something as a common bond. Like, oh, yeah, we're all in a tavern muttering together about how much, you know, like, oh, yeah, if I could get him alone in a dark alley for a couple of minutes. So, yeah. They also introduced the Harrowed, which was the uh, Harrow deck or Tarot deck that uh, is unique to Galarian or Pathfinder itself, I guess. It's now more ubiquitous than it is apart. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, the, we have both uh, the new book and the old one. So they have a good way of, we have the old player's guide, and they're almost uh, point for point, which is uh, no small reason there. But it provides you also with a background. Uh, Queen Ialicia has uh, been recently married to an, the former king of Corvosa. And, uh, well, he will be former. <laughs> uh, she's very young, he's very old, and seen as kind of fading in his lighter parts of life. And, you know, she just hooks up with him, and it's all advantages for her, and all advantages of him having a young wife, and everything kind of goes awry. We're not going to spoil it, because it is spoilers that should be put in there. But it does evolve, and... This becomes quite an urban campaign and then shifts to a wilderness campaign as you move on and then goes back to a dungeon. And then as the players progress, that those dungeon crawls, uh, you know, you, the players, you're not just throwing a few, you know, measly orcs at them. You're throwing a whole bunch of orcs and all sorts of crazy horrors. Oh. Boy, uh, Castle Scarwall is, wow. Uh, that's... Now, but I, I am going to say that... Uh... In the opening chapters, uh, they take time out to have a, a thing that I wanted to mention here in chapter backgrounds, the advancement track. Uh, and it spells out very explicitly for the novice or experienced uh, dungeon master that uh, what point at which players should be facing specific challenges. Well, yeah, but that's been you pretty much reach, through the whole of... Their adventure paths. That's... Yeah, this is a thing that Pathfinder does that you don't so often see. It's not something that you see in Dungeons & Dragons very much. Oh, well, now, yeah. Pathfinder made a point of highlighting 
you know, what level should the player characters be as they move into this stage of the adventure? Uh, and it's nice. I think that's terrific because if you have a very experienced DM, you don't really need these things. But if you have somebody who is really coming into the game new, then having this information in the module, and that's one of those moments where we cross-reference here, we go back to those uh, B1, B2, B3, you know, that early series of modules, a lot of the material was there precisely because novice DMs could use the extra push. They could use the extra information, a little hand-holding to walk them through it and get them get their sea legs under them. And I respect and love that Pathfinder exercised the same kind of thoughtfulness. Well, they'd been kind of doing that. They had yep. the most experience from, I think, the Shackled City, their very first adventure path before, while they were still with uh, Dungeon Magazine. But I think they really came into that with uh, Age of Worms and then the uh, Savage Tide. They were like, oh, yeah, that's something that we really learned. Like, you know, because they'd start and say, your PC should be this level. When they did Rise of the Rune Lords, they really formatted that well. And this is the kind of formulaic, if you will. That's one of the criticisms that's often leveled at Pathfinder and the Adventure Path system is that it's a formula. You kind of know as you know the page count gets lower, the DM's turning less pages, that you're getting towards the end. Now this is the time to make your big play. You're going to be coming to the climax of this series of an interconnected adventures. And again, we talked about plot coupons and such things like that. This is where this kind of terminology comes about is that you do so much and you accomplish these things, these coupons accumulate, and now you're able to cash them in and get to the end of the adventure and then, you know, get your next uh, installment ready. So here it is, <clears throat> spelled out very well with a very detailed setting. And one of my favorite ones is because it is a urban adventure and there's a lot of things that they did with this that happen in an urban environment, like a plague. There's a contagation that breaks out early, pretty early on, I think in the second or third installment. It's second installment it starts, and I think the third installment finishes it up. So you spend the first three chapters of this inside Corvosa, dealing with the various intrigues, the lockdown, and of course the quarantines. Oh, sound familiar? Yeah. So that's another reason why we foreseen. No. No, I'm kidding. Oh, yeah, this isn't read, the Simpsons, okay? Anybody who has read Camus' The Plague, yeah, know, just like um, it's an extremely tempting, you know, trope to work with because uh, the idea of a city locked down and in quarantine in uh, Middle Ages kind of era, which was not that uncommon, you know, the sailor comes into port with a wet cough, and the next thing you know, half the town is dropping like flies that welcomed the ancient world. It was just like that. So it's a very fun trope to work with. It's just a little bit awkward at this particular moment. Yep, and of course, it talks about, uh, in the second part, uh, Eredred Arabasti II kicks the bucket, and the Queen Ilesia Arabasti now takes the throne. And of course, uh, there's a lot of things that go on in the middle of this adventure early on that are more backdrop, but now as the players get pulled closer and closer to the queen and these events, will become more prominent in their lives. And that's a big thing in urban adventuring is that it's a more social campaign, but here you're having a lot of things to fight and do and uh, chase after. It also has that element of pulpy adventure where, 
you know, the city is wild at times and it can be as dangerous as any bandit or orc infested dungeon or wilderness area. So, but uh, we're going to take a quick break and be right back. We're going to do a little interlude and uh, we're going to come back with the second part of this. So stick around. All right, and we're back, so thanks for sticking around for that break. Anyway, we're talking about the uh, Curse of the Crimson Throne, and uh, we've discussed how this plays into our previous episodes of story and background and development, which these adventure paths do very well. Now, of course... You mentioned, uh, you know, the, the next... You mentioned the second phase of the game with the major outbreak epidemic. Yep. Uh, you know, that shuts everything down, and that's a whole separate series of challenges for the yep. now, now competent and reasonably well-trained or prepared adventurers. Uh, and that moves us into the next zone. Uh, Escape from old Corvosa. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you're trapped inside. Featuring the... Snake Plifkin. No, all right, kidding. Yeah, this one basically is called the Rakshasa level. Yeah, it is. I... Again, we're trying to avoid spoilers here. It's not that we don't want to share the meat and potatoes, but we don't want to give away too much. Uh, but let's let's just say that uh, in the aftermath of the plague, uh, the the epidemic that hits the city, uh, you're dealing with a city that was already uh, kind of a structurally rotten to begin with and riddled with crises waiting to explode, uh, and after blow after blow. Uh, your your next situation uh, places the uh, player characters in an old portion of the city uh, and in rather dire need of getting out. Yep, and so uh, the reason why I want to highlight the Rakshas is that often people have <clears throat> asked, and I've even had this happen, uh, I was attending a Discord one night about... Uh, in Tenkar's Tavern, and a guy asked, he said, why would you even have a Rakshasa wandering around? And I'm like, dude. I mean, they're they, awesome! I mean, they're, they would totally dwell in an urban environment where they could blend in. I mean, they're absolute shapeshifters. Yeah, I mean, take on a human form, uh, d you know, like, uh, display that you are powerfully competent at magic, and then... They can read minds and, and create yeah, a, uh, a, a very convincing illusions. I mean, wow, what... People are like, you know, you can have people bring in your food to you. Like, uh, well, people are food to them. Well, but, yeah. exactly. You get your min. You don't eat the minions. <laughs> you need don't those. eat the help. I need them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, that you have all these wonderful opportunities for Rakshasa to insinuate themselves into positions of subtle control where they're, they're not so right up front that powerful people are scrutinizing them and ultimately seeing through their trickery. Uh, but just enough in the background that they're able to get what they want, which is <laughs> fresh human flesh. Um. <laughs> yeah, and they did a perfect job developing this. So if this is a little bit of a spoiler at this point, well, sorry. But yeah, it's also really well done. And I think that this part of the adventure is more the DM's purview, especially how they bring it about. There's also the Van Kaskerkin uh, connection, which if you're familiar with Second Darkness and all through the rest of the, uh, even Rise of the Rune Lords, these guys show up. Wow, what a family of interconnected NPCs that just always seem to be at the worst part of things. So, uh, 
you know, you go through and you deal with all the problems of being in plague where you're not supposed to be wandering around or move, maneuvering. Something that player characters prize very highly is their independence and ability to move around. This is a little bit more difficult, but if you had your characters starting at the beginning, they probably have a few uh, stealthy or roguish type skills or have some very powerful rogues or well-trained bards in the hair capable of getting you past some of these things. Yeah, at least one skilled rogue should absolutely be in the party. Uh, but in any case, you know, in a worst-case scenario, one would hope that players who might be low on uh, stealth skills would at least have built alliances or built friendships with the appropriate persons to help them in their quest. Because uh, not everything is impossible. You know, it, it just... No. Nope. There's just how difficult accomplishing something is going to be and what extra steps will they have to take to overcome a skill deficit. Now, as you continue through the adventure, uh, eventually you get out of the city and you leave. And you start the uh, next one, which was a history of ashes or a history of violence. <laughs> yeah, so my like favorite. somebody I used to know. <laughs> yeah, a history of violence, all right. Especially when I'm playing my barbarian. Well, okay, so... Yeah, now you go into the Wilderlands, and now you have sort of a transition. And here's where maybe you had characters that were more urban-oriented. They're going to be taken out of their environment. And so this is a transition period that works pretty well if you let people level up. And this is the time where you're going to be making some changes in maybe your character class. Multi-classing or changing some skills up. Yeah, by now the character should be around 10th level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or just closing in on it uh, one way or another. So this is where you can take a couple uh, levels in something else, or you've had that ranger who's just been an urban ranger, and he's kind of like, mm. well, here's a new terrain for them. So here's a good transition point for that. Or you've had that barbarian who's just been cooped up behind the walls in this stinking, fetid, diseased city, and now is the time for them to be unleashed. Here is where it all comes together a little bit more, if you do this correctly. <laughs> and you encounter charming characters like Crojun eats what he kills. And the Cinderlander, yeah. Cinderlander played well. He's a very fun character because he doesn't strike all at once. He strikes the players as he stalks them. Uh, so he might be just a, you know, a, this is where it also almost meets, meets a Wild West kind of ethic because he's a dry gulcher, man. He's a sniper. And he uses that crossbow to great efficiency. So, oh, but yeah. there's, there's still some, some... cold-blooded stuff here. But uh, the the point is, is that the the characters are given a chance to get out of their comfort zone, uh, which he may be presents, taking them out of their comfort zone too. Yeah, it presents opportunities for skills, abilities, transitions, things like that that might not have been so easily achieved while trapped inside the city. So, lovely little break to to get out uh, and stretch their wings as high-level or mid-level uh, players. Yeah, and there's also some good lore development here. There's uh, one of the Rune Lords also, uh, or their Sahedron. One of their legacies is hidden cleverly here. And you get some insight into the Shoanti culture, as well as start moving forward into getting back to what's behind all this. And the reason for going out is kind of complex, you need to spend more time explaining it. But let us just say that there's a reason that the players have made friends with the Shoanti early on in this adventure path that uh, brings them here. And their revelations are giving them 
insight where to go to next and what to do, how to stop Queen Alicia and her diabolical plans, which, yeah, we ain't kidding about that. Yeah, they are pretty diabolical. Again, no spoilers. We highly recommend having a copy of The Crimson Throne. Even if you don't necessarily like Pathfinder, there are elements in this overall story that would be incredibly easy to convert and make into a very challenging 3.5 module. That would be the easiest transition. Adjusting it to 3.5 would be super easy. However, uh, the enterprising or skilled DM might find it both challenging and fun to convert this to uh, first edition play, fifth edition play, second, fourth, it doesn't matter. Uh, if you've got the ability, I, yeah, this, it's a, it's a bare bones story. It's, it's worth the purchase <clears throat> just for the campaign play alone. But yeah, if you just want to use a lot of adjustment to a, a different setting. Not that any of us need any uh, guideposts in running into a quarantine area, but because oh. we live it. But well, we don't now. Now. But if you just want to use the first part as a setting for an urban adventure or just to mine some ideas from, you, couldn't, you could do worse. I'll put it that way. But there's also a Harrow deck that initially brings the characters together. And this reoccurs uh, with many points inside the campaign. They, they start what they call respect points. And when you achieve certain amounts of these, of course, just like with uh, plot coupons, you redeem them for extra prizes and rewards. Uh, actually, uh, things that will help you not only move the plot, but reveal certain hidden things that the players may have missed. And this is a good thing what we've talked about before is sometimes you're trying to keep ahead of the plot and players may miss something. This is a good way for you to refocus by using this tarot deck that has a ghost attached to it. Now, I, I want to mention something about the overarching uh, History of Ashes tidbits here. Uh, there is a factor in this called respect points. Okay, and there are different ways to get them, uh, different actions that the players can undertake during the course of this third chapter uh, to earn the respect of the indigenous peoples, you know, once they have gotten out of the city. Uh, and they have to ultimately acquire enough respect points to win over uh, some recalcitrant individuals who possess mm -hmm. critical information. And it, it will not be hard, uh, as you know, the, the adventure spells it out, to make the player characters aware of, A, what it is that they need. It's part of why they left the city in the first place. They, they by means, come across... An understanding that we must go in search of this knowledge, and so they're out in the greater world. But the hurdles that they go through for this are not necessarily overwhelming. They're entirely level appropriate. But I liked that it was a little point system. Like, uh, you know, there are, there are some easy ways to rack up some sure. respect points early on. Uh, but to get to the final tally... Uh, a certain amount of adventuring related to appeasing these folks is going to be necessary. Typical of a video game quest, you know, where, uh, well, you know, what what have you done for me lately? You know, you do the, this for the me, mechanics, this yeah, for are familiar. Well, yeah, they're familiar. I I guess that uh, <laughs> that's where the dog wags the tail uh, when you come back to full circle on it. That you start to see 
that video games have followed the role-playing games, and role-playing games have started to follow things from the video games. So, yeah, yeah. they blur, they complement each other well. But the Ouroboros. Yes. The snake devours its tail. Indeed. And uh, good literary content right there. But more importantly, when you get together with uh, your friends and uh, you play these games, you learn that... There's different ways of doing things, and one thing that Pathfinder has picked up is there's been a multitude of little... Each Adventure Path kind of has its own unique little sub-game system in it. And I found that uh, from a lot of campaigns and playing with friends that everybody does it, it differently. And one thing I like about the Adventure Path, and this is my personal preference, you may not uh, really care about uh, Pathfinder or anything else but uh, that I uh, have talked about here. But this is the one where I notice that every Adventure Path has a unique little subsystem. And this is the Respect Points and the Hero Deck. It's just part of that. And it reminds me so much of how playing in different campaigns with dungeon, different Dungeon Masters and players exposed me to different subsystems and little house rules. And I really like that. That's one of my little geek things I like about this. Good so. point. It does remind you of the days of house rules. Like yeah. only inside the, confine, uh, or inside the confines of this particular campaign setting will you be using these quirky different yeah, rules. Yeah, little rules. And so, character traits and harrowed deck and... Respect points, you know, yeah, th this is something unique to this particular And they do product. it with every little adventure path, which just blows my mind. But it gives me a different insight into the designers and writers that they have. So I think that's pretty cool. So, but yeah, um, as we're starting to wind on, you know, this is hard to cover in one session, but we're going to just wrap it up whirlwind style. Skeletons After you get of out of Scarwall. there and you start, uh, the campaign starts accelerating, you finally uh, are able to go and return back to Corvosa in grand style, and this time you go after the queen, which finds you at odds with the Grey Maidens and some of the members of the Corvosan royalty, and then you're able to uh, find out what ultimately is behind this. She's made a hellbound contract, and that she's actually now inhabited by a, yeah, something. And so she's now... <laughs> yeah. By then you're in... Uh, the final chapter is Crown of Fangs, yeah, where, where, where the players should be like near 14th, 15th, 16th level uh, before they're confronting the Curse of the Crimson. Yeah, Road. and you fight so. Queen Ilesia, which they've revised uh, a little bit from the first one. But uh, yeah, there's quite a bit going on with her at the end. So it should be an epic fight. If done well, and it's definitely one that should be probably done in miniature, I would definitely uh, say. But also uh, typical in here, they have, uh, yeah, well, let's talk about the uh, plague, the blood veil, which is, wow. That's a, that's a terrible thing to just uh, throw out in these times. But uh, yeah, it is I... interesting in the fact that it provides a good fantasy disease and uh, that isn't easily treatable by the normal means of cure disease without making it... Uh, like, cure disease just doesn't work, or the gods quit talking to you. <laughs> kind of a uh, plot device that just seems to be uh, hackneyed. Because yeah, that one has been overdone. Uh, I, look, it was a little bit new back in the days of first edition and in Dragonlance. You know, like, well, there's just no clerical magic. Uh, okay, you know, I took it all with a grain of salt back then. Uh, since then, it's kind of become the standard course where if you've got a plague then the clerics can't fix it uh, because otherwise this would not be an issue and 
As a workaround, I understand that like that's sometimes necessary, uh, but <laughs> they, they took some extra time to thoughtfully work out a long and detailed explanation of exactly what the blood veil uh, is as plagues go. And man, you know, <laughs> uh, highlighting very specifically the uh, comparatively small number of clerics uh, versus the very large number of people. Right, and it also puts that into perspective. Also, like with the gods of Glorian, Saren Ray is always ready to heal and treat diseases. This is resistant. Now, it doesn't mean that cure disease doesn't work. It's just very resistant, which makes lower-level clerics less effectual. They might be able to roll really well and remove one or two people, which would probably be the player characters or important NPCs at that time. Oh, and, and here's just like, uh, honestly, the one factor that is a complete jerk move here. Uh, you can get it again. Yep. So it keeps passing around. It is super hard to get rid of. Oh my god, it's like somebody spilled glitter in here. <laughs> it's everywhere. Uh, yeah. Oh, of course. And that's what makes it unique. So, uh, of course, after you complete it, the players may find themselves at the head of Corvosa or being able to put a new person on there. And there are several NPCs that are willing to do that, as well as a character, kind of a subplot, the Blackjack, which is a vigilante kind of uh, a, oh, a do-gooding swashbuckler who writes wrong. Sort of a Zorro. Ha <laughs> ha! And so that's a good one for players to retire in and be ready to uh, grow into that. As well as some other things and good NPCs and hopefully some friends and lovers that you've accumulated. All in all, it's a very satisfying campaign and it's one I highly recommend. Right up there with Rise of the Rune Lords. And I'm really happy. Uh, I know that uh, Kingmaker is getting a new treatment too, which oh. justly it should be. And uh, there's a lot to recommend Kingmaker as well. But, um, you know, all in all, uh, Curse of the Crimson Throne is one of those great campaigns that only comes along once in a while. And I was happy to play it and uh, be a part of it. And I have a lot of good memories of it. And that's where we're at, is that as well as playing the old stuff, it's time to make good uh, memories and new ones too. And so this is one that uh, goes into the nostalgia file of as being a lot of fun and a lot of good memories generated off of. There were yeah, two, there, there were almost two party TPKs. There was when I played it, we had a complete TPK right in the middle. Just oh, everybody died. Wow! And so we had to restart. And uh, hey, you know that's that's what part of the DM uh, job is. And we almost had a second one. So. Uh, not the same encounter, I hope. Oh, no, no, no. no, no. Totally different nope. circumstances. Okay. Completely huh. different circumstances. You know, the, a second at the same uh, choke point would indicate perhaps like a, a an excessive threat level. But, you know, sometimes the dice are just not kind. Uh, I, I gotta say, there, there have been some near-miss moments uh, in some otherwise sensibly apportioned campaigns that I have been in where... You know, despite thinking that things were going, you're like, no, oh, no, 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 we can, we totally got this. Well, perhaps not so much. Didn't work out anywhere near like I thought. But this, 
I'm, I'm not fatuously glowing here about this. I, I think that on the measurements, uh, my ultimate vote on any product is worth the price of entry, okay? Uh, this, for a large hardbound edition with, uh, you know, backup materials available to support it, at an item that was originally retailing at 60 bucks. I gotta say, that 60 bucks was well spent. This is worth the price of entry. Uh, even for people who may not necessarily be interested in doing Pathfinder. I mean, if you want to uh, well, harvest getting, this for great ideas, it's full of them. Well, getting all six Adventure Paths, each at 20 bucks a piece. Yeah, I mean, had you bought this as uh, individual modules, uh, you know, if it, this had come out at 20 bucks a pop, uh, you would have easily, you know, gone past a hundred bucks. So to have all of this bundled into a superb, durable, hardbound edition that is extremely attractive, uh, 100% worth it. I, it's got my vote. Yep. <laughs> all right. So that's going to do it for us. Uh, we're going to shove off here on Way Anchor. Or Way Anchor and shove off. We should probably do that first. Yeah. Let's hoist up the anchor and furl the sail after we have shoved off from the docks. All right, let's not destroy our ship. <laughs> let's make sure that Gru has Roberto with him or we're going down. Yep. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't bring Gru There's with me. There's a little deep cut. Yep, that is a deep cut. Anyway, uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll be definitely talking about Pathfinder again and uh, the Curse of the Crimson Throne in our next installment where we'll just recap real quick and go into Palace of the Silver Princess. That'll be our next one. Yes, uh, one of Tom Moldvay's best. Yep, and very controversial as well, but we'll also touch on that. And then, we'll, of course, we'll put them all together. But uh, in any case, we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, we'll be coming at you next week, once a week now. That's our format. And, Expect uh, us Wednesday. Yeah, you can get a hold of us on our Facebook page as well as getting a hold of us in person on Twitter and our normal haunts, the Dicer Screaming Facebook page. Leave me some comments there. We appreciate them. Or, or, or you can not expect us. No. No one expects a gaming podcast. <laughs> well, especially the Dicer Screaming. Um, but, of course, if you uh, can download the Anchor app and uh, leave us a message, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. You can hit that subscribe button lightly just tap it on the shoulder because it's been through a lot lately it's a little jumpy after the soap and the uh last of the stuff that's been through so flick its nipple it loves that oh i was just gonna say just tap it gently on the shoulder it's a little jumpy right now just need some time off but yeah lightly tap that subscribe button and you can get uh notifications when we put a new podcast episode out true so until next time may the dice always roll in your favor we're out See ya.